Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. (sighs) The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. Afghanistan has dominated the news for weeks, and many of you, our listeners, have asked us to do an episode on the issue. So today, we're bringing you a conversation that I was involved in at the Michael V. Hayden Center at George Mason University with two other former intelligence community officers, Mike Vickers and Phil Riley, both previous guests on our show. The discussion was moderated by our producer, Olivia Gazis. We'll be right back with that discussion. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Uh, Gentlemen, thank you so much for being here uh, and welcome. Let's spend just a few minutes again on the past, starting at the final stages of the Cold War. And Mike Vickers, I will start with you. Uh, As Larry mentioned, you were an integral part of the CIA covert action program that supported the Mujahideen uh, and the anti-communist resistance movement, which ultimately drove the Soviets from Afghanistan At the time, a very meaningful victory, but uh, uh, had some tragic consequences for Afghanistan, which descended into civil war, and for the United States, which ultimately witnessed uh, the horrors of 9-11. So can you start us off with just a little bit of context by explaining who the groups were that we were supporting at the time, what happened when we withdrew that support, uh, and how we arrived as a a consequence at the birth of both the Taliban and al-Qaeda? Sure, happy to, and, and good evening, Olivia and, and everyone else. Um, so I became the Afghanistan Covert Action Program Officer and Chief Strategist in summer of 1984. So I go back a long ways uh, with Afghanistan. 
And some of the people who were my resistance commanders, prominent commanders actually leading fighting forces in Afghanistan, ended up having very prominent positions in the Afghan government that I worked with when I became an assistant secretary and undersecretary. So I had a lot of continuity uh, over um, four decades. Um, what happened after we won this great historic victory that helped contribute to the demise of the Soviet, Soviet empire um, was that we essentially turned our backs on Afghanistan and, and focused on uh, consolidating the gains in Europe, the primary theater of the Cold War with the reunification of Germany and liberation of Eastern Europe. And then a thing called the Pressler Amendment caused us to essentially break relations with Pakistan when their nuclear program got um, uh, too far along for President Bush to be able to certify that they weren't heading toward a nuclear weapon. And so that became that led to the time of troubles that, as you mentioned, a, a civil war occurred among Mujahideen fighters. The Pakistanis had their favorite, a fellow named Gulbuddin Hekmatyar. Um, and then in 1996, the Taliban took over and a lot of the Afghan population was just hoping for an end to um, decades of war at that point. They didn't get it. And then uh, in 1996, as Michael can talk about better than I, uh, bin Laden went from Sudan to Afghanistan, and then those events um, led to 9-11. I would argue that 9-11 was as much or more a policy failure as it was uh, an intelligence failure. Uh, we had opportunities to deal with that sanctuary. One of the things, one of the big lessons we learned from that experience was not allow sanctuaries after that. And so with that, I'll stop. Thank you. And, and Mike, we'll revisit a, ver a version of this question um, later. But while we're on you, I just want to ask, you've long said that the U.S. committed an error in at, at the end of the war, the Cold War, by disengaging from the region. And I wanted to ask if you still think now that continued U.S. engagement then might have prevented the Taliban from coming to power. And do the developments today make you reconsider that view? Um, yes, I think it's possible it would have. Um, you know, the circumstances were were quite difficult. The U.S. had a lot on its plate uh, at the end of the uh, Cold War, 1989 to 1992, before Afghanistan really descended into hell. Um, and so it might have made a real difference to stay engaged. The challenge would have been how to do that with an estranged U.S. relationship with Pakistan because of their nuclear weapons program. And so that's what would have reduced a lot of our leverage and complicated it, but we would have been far better off. I mean, my old boss, Bob Gates, says that it was one of the biggest mistakes we made um, after the Cold War to disengage. And, and you know, and I, I agree with him also, you know, the Afghans really played a major role in helping us um, win the end game of the Cold War. You know, a million of them died, a third of the population was put into exile. So to pick up and leave was maybe not the right moral as well as strategic decision. And, and today I think we made a mistake as well by, by leaving completely. We'll definitely dive into that shortly. Um, Michael, just as a little bit more historic context, Michael Morell, I'll call you Michael and Mike Vickers, Mike. Um, so let's have you pick up the thread where uh, Mike left off. Uh, you know, in the early nineties, the CIA is of course watching Al Qaeda uh, gain potency. It's tracking the rise to prominence of uh, who was first cast as a terror financier, later cast as a terrorist, uh, Osama bin Laden, of course. Uh, it wasn't until the late 90s that the U.S.'s focus on al-Qaeda really expanded beyond the agency. You got more resources dedicated to tracking it. 
Can you talk a little bit, just a little bit about what the conditions at that time were that allowed Al-Qaeda to grow, to organize, and to become capable of, ca of carrying out these really complex attacks that culminated, of course, in 9-11? Sure. Um, first of all, it, it's great to be with everybody tonight. And Olivia, thank you for, um, for moderating. Um, you know, Mike said it earlier, um, and I'll say it maybe a little, a little more directly, there is nothing there is nothing as important as safe haven to a terrorist group. Um, it allows them to operate, to plan, to train um, without worry, right? Without consequence of, uh, of, of, of somebody coming after them. And that's what the Taliban um, in Afghanistan prior to 9-11 gave to Al Qaeda. Um, and I don't believe the 9-11 attacks would have been possible without the Taliban providing that, that safe haven. Um, interestingly, the Taliban was not supportive of um, al-Qaeda conducting attacks uh, around the world, um, but they didn't do anything in response to the attacks against our embassies in East Africa. They didn't do anything um, in response to the many threats um, around the time of the, the millennium um, that were pinned back on bin Laden, and they didn't do anything in response to the USS Cole. Um, and, and in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, they had an opportunity the United States gave the Taliban an opportunity to avoid war um, by turning bin Laden over um, or by taking action against him themselves. Um, and they chose not to do that. So, you know, that takes us from, from where Mike left off to, uh, to, uh, to the days after 9-11. Which is where we'll have Phil, you jump in, because we are having this conversation almost to the day when you and nine other men who made up the jawbreaker team traveled to Afghanistan to meet up with the Northern Alliance. That was September 26, 2001. Um, and it was a liaison mission, uh, not a military operation, right? So can you give us just a little bit of background on what the mission was and how cultivating that relationship with the Northern Alliance factored in the U.S. military effort that followed uh, and maybe a little bit about how it fa might factor today? Sure. Uh, thank you very much, Olivia and General Hayden. Thank you for your continued uh, leadership. Um, the CIA had a relationship with the Northern Alliance. The Northern Alliance controlled a small sliver of northeastern Afghanistan in the fall of 2001. It was the only unoccupied, unoccupied being the rest of the country to hold, held by the Taliban. Um, and so it was an enabled CIA, which had assets in the region and a capability to put people on the ground. As you said, 26 September 2001, uh, our mission was to bring the Northern Alliance to our side completely to pave the way for the introduction of what we assumed correctly to be a large U.S. military entry, uh, and to also commence the hunt for uh, Al-Qaeda and UBL and those responsible for the attacks on 9-11. I should say that on the 9th of September, uh, Ahmed Shah Massoud, the head of the Northern Alliance, was assassinated by Al-Qaeda, and that was a galvanizing event that brought the Northern Alliance firmly, firmly into the U.S. Uh, fold, and that enabled us to, to bring in U.S. Army Special Forces, and let me say that uh, it was once a Green Beret many years ago, but it was the absolute perfect tool for the U.S. military to select, and working with, joined with CIA teams and U.S. Military Special Forces Green Berets, about 300 people were able to ultimately defeat the Taliban, along with with superior U.S. air power within a period of about two months. So we're leaving a gap, but we'll revisit some of what happened in the intervening 20 years um, in, in, in the conversation to follow. Uh, but that was a helpful encapsulation of, I think, roughly 50 years in 10 minutes. So thank you very much. Um, 
let's talk a little bit about today, current developments, starting with the decision to leave Afghanistan. Uh, I think each of you has previously publicly articulated a view that uh, some U.S. presence would be necessary to keep the Taliban at bay. Um, this week, we heard top generals uh, testify that that was their personal view as well. Uh, we assume that was their recommendation to the president as well to retain uh, at least 2,500 troops on the ground in Afghanistan while pursuing a negotiated agreement. So maybe we can just do a round robin and ask all three of you. Uh, I am curious when this sense of inevitability arose, at what point did it become clear to you that a Taliban takeover was unavoidable absent a US presence? Was there a particular moment or turning point when that became apparent? Um, why don't we start with Mike Vickers? Well, there was some hope that um, the Afghan government and the Afghan security forces that we had invested a lot in um, would be able to hold together. But we should have learned from our experiences about the rapid collapse of Iraqi security forces in 2015 in northern Iraq against ISIS, uh, and then Yemeni security forces that we'd also invested a lot in um, that same year against the Houthis who took over Yemen. You know, militaries can collapse really rapidly. And General McKenzie has testified that the Afghan government and much of Afghan security forces essentially saw the writing on the wall with the decision um, for the U.S. to actually withdraw, you know, beyond the um, peace agreement, or as H.R. McMaster has called it, the surrender agreement negotiated by the, the, the previous administration. Um, and so then they started making deals with the Taliban. You know, and the Taliban at first took over um, districts and provincial areas, but then it really um, um, sped up rapidly. And, and I think, um, you know, the end game still went faster than, than people thought. But, I, but timelines kept moving up about how fast uh, it, uh, the, the government might collapse. So indications as far back as 2015. Uh, Michael Morell, what, what's, your, what's your view on this? Yeah, to, to answer your question, Olivia, you know, when, when did I believe that absent U.S. forces on the ground, the Taliban, you know, would, would take over? When did I first realize that? You know, I have to tell you, it goes way back to the surge, to the Obama surge. Um, when 130,000 U.S. troops um, were not able to win the war, when the Taliban fought 130,000 U.S. troops essentially to a stalemate, um, you know, that told me that this war, you know, wasn't, wasn't winnable, number one. And number two, if we left, the Taliban would, would take over. Um, so, so, so that goes way back for me. You know, I agree with Mike on kind of the timeline um, this year, um, but, the, but the realization to me that, that the Taliban would take over absent U.S. forces goes way back. Phil, which how do you see Which is why we kept them there for so long, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with both, both of my uh, colleagues. Uh, I, I thought without U.S. troop presence and U.S. air power to support the Afghans, uh, 
they would collapse. I did not think in, in the short period of time that they did, but I thought it was in fact I inevitable. And so when we made the decision ultimately that Trump made and then that President Biden then sort of doubled down on, we are leaving zeroizing US troop presence, I thought it would just be a matter of time. But again, I, I like it, everyone else did not predict it as short as it was, but uh, it, uh, it, it was inevitable. This is a little bit more of a policy question, but let's do a quick round robin on this one, too. Um, and that's the Biden administration's rationale for leaving now. Um, you know, they've made they've they've argued that they were bound by the deal struck uh, by the Trump administration uh, and that they risked an escalation with the Taliban if that withdrawal didn't happen by the end of August. Did you find that rationale coherent? Did you find it persuasive? Let's do it in the same order uh, with Mike Vickers first. Uh, no, I don't. I mean, uh you know, there aren't too many policy continuities between the Trump administration and Biden administration as there weren't between Obama, uh, the Obama administration and the Trump administration. Trump administration pulled out of the Iran deal. Biden administration wants to go back in. So why this is some special case, I don't know. Phil really hit the nail on the head in the sense the things that kept Afghanistan together were really U.S. assistance and engagement and, and then air power. You know, and as long as we uh, maintained U.S. air power, the Taliban couldn't win. You know, so Michael correctly raised the point that, you know, even with the surge, we couldn't defeat the Taliban. We actually pushed them back in terms of area they controlled back to about 2006 levels, uh, but we couldn't defeat them because of the Pakistan sanctuary. But, but the paradox of this is neither could the Taliban win when we had 7,500 or fewer troops in country from 2015 till 2021. It was only when we pulled out um, air power and signaled we were leaving that the state collapsed. Michael? You know, I hardly ever, 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 ever disagree with my really good friend, Mike Vickers, but um, I'm gonna disagree just a little bit here. Um, I don't think the choice for President Biden was um, leave or stay with 2,500. I think the choice was leave or plus up. And I don't know exactly what the number was, um, but I think a plus up would have been required. 7,500, 10,000, I don't know what the right number is, but um, we needed, if we were going to stay, we would need to add more troops in order to provide force protection for those 2,500 and for all the civilians in the country. 2,500 simply wasn't enough. And I think that President Biden judged correctly that that was not politically possible, that the American people were done with this war. Um, and could he have persuaded the American people that we needed to stay and to actually plus up our troops I don't know. I doubt it. Um, clearly, his heart wasn't in, um, you know, such a, a, a public relations campaign. Um, so I think he did face an extraordinarily difficult decision. Um, and, you, you know, for my money, I think um, he probably made the right one, given, given the choices he faced. Phil, you can choose a panelist to agree or disagree with. Uh, I'm going to uh, agree with uh, Mike Vickers. Uh, sorry, uh, Michael. Uh, no but I think this could have been done with 2,500, and that's based on conversations with some of the generals, most senior generals in, involved in this. Uh, bear in mind, too, 2,500 would be our figure. 
Uh, we have allies who are still there, still still putting up a fight. And there were other elements of the U.S. government actively, actively working the, the target sets. I think it could have could have held. Had the decision been made to maybe delay a bit, you probably could have negotiated that with the Taliban. And, and I've seen other people say it. Had they just pushed the departure into the winter months, it could have enabled some time gap separation between our departure potentially and the collapse that ensued. But to do it at the height of the fighting season with the Taliban in full vigor, uh, especially when that was being telegraphed to us with the collapse of all the provinces, uh, I think it just was, was, was uh, a bad decision. You know, um, Olivia, the other thing I would say here, um, which my co-panelists probably won't agree with either, is I don't think it's appropriate for a president of the United States to send young men and young women into harm's way um, with so much of the public opposed to the war. Um, I don't think that's fair um, to those soldiers to do that. And we're not talking about a, a you know, 60-40, 55-45, 60-40 here. We're talking about a, a, a very large percentage of the American public that was just done with this thing. Michael, Phil, do you want to engage on that question or should we? I, I, I agree. I mean, you, you make a good point, Michael. I mean, the vast majority of the American public wanted out, wanted out even after what happened. Um, uh, the majority now also think it was done probably poorly or handled poorly, uh, the departure, but they're still overwhelmingly supportive of being gone. So to your point, that's right. The president had that going for him and was responding to the proponents of the American public. So I, you know, I agree with those points. I, I find it hard to believe knowing what has happened that people don't wish they could revise this decision a little bit. Um, you know, given the given the cost to America, um, and so we'll 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 just have to see over time. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more of a discussion on Afghanistan. Okay, picture this: it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So let's talk a little bit about the intelligence that would have informed the policy decision to leave and in what time frame that all should have been done. Um, both Phil and uh, Mike have said that it happened faster than uh, foreseen. We've heard that repeatedly from the administration and the Pentagon, including this week in testimony, that there was no intelligence indicating Kabul would fall in 11 days. Secretary Austin uh, said it was a surprise and it would be dishonest to claim otherwise. Weeks ago, the DNI uh, also put out a statement saying that the Taliban takeover happened more quickly than anticipated, presumably within the IC. So, does that suggest, and this is to you, Michael Morell, um, does that suggest that there was a shortcoming in the intelligence? Assuming that level of precision wasn't there, should it have been offered by the IC? Yeah, so this is a tough question, right? Because I haven't seen the intelligence. I haven't seen the intelligence analysis. I haven't seen what was both provided to the president before he made his decision um, on whether the Taliban would take over, and if so, how long would that take? Um, that's a very important judgment. Um, and I haven't seen um, the evolution of that judgment 
you know, post post announcement in April through through early August. So I don't know what the intelligence community said. Um, I find it hard to believe that the intelligence community got this as wrong as um, some people have said. I'd be shocked at that. Um, in fact, I've you know I don't while I haven't seen it, I've I've heard people say pe- people who know say that uh, at least the CIA is, feels feels pretty good um, about the judgments that it made. Um, you know, in terms of in terms of the judgment that was made prior to the president's decision, um, I think one of the things you have to think about is, uh, let's say they said a year, right? Let's say they said six months. I don't know what they said, but let's, uh, let's just say for the sake of argument, they said a year. The question becomes, when does the clock start ticking, right? When does that, that, that year start? Is it when the last boot leaves the ground? No. Is it when the, when the first boot leaves the ground? No, I think it's when the president made the decision because that's when the psychology changed for everybody um, in Afghanistan. It was the moment in, you know, when the president made the decision in April, it was the moment when the Taliban knew that it was going to win. And it was the moment when the Afghan government knew that it was going to lose. And if you looked at what happened right in in the immediate aftermath of that announcement, the Taliban accelerated the extent to which they were surrounding um, provincial capitals. Um, you know, nobody should be surprised with, with, with what they intended to do when they were surrounding those provincial capitals. The number of desertions among Afghan security forces skyrocketed after the announcement. They either went home or they flipped to the Taliban. And it should be no surprise to anybody that um, the Afghan senior Afghan government leaders would start thinking about saving their own necks, right? And I saw the first two things publicly. Um, so that was no secret. Um, and I'd be shocked if the intelligence community didn't see the third one as well. So um, I think there's a little um, blame game going on here. Um, people are always very quick to throw the intelligence community under the bus. Um, the last point I would make, the last point I would make is, you know, throughout the history of the 20 years, CIA was by far, by far the most pessimistic agency about how the war was going. We did um, two annual reports. We did an annual report called the district assessments, where we looked at who controlled which district, um, whether the Taliban controlled it, whether the government controlled it, or the work or whether it was contested. Um, and we also did an annual report on the, the, the Afghan security forces and um, their capabilities and will to fight. And we were always pessimistic in every single case. And in every case that I was involved in as a senior leader, both as the head of analysis at CIA and then as the deputy director, the United States military pushed back really hard on these assessments saying, you're, you're wrong, your analysts aren't on the ground, they don't understand the progress we're making. Um, so, you know, um, intelligence is being the whipping boy here, I'm almost certain.
Mike, let me get your take on that. You know, so do you think it's it's fairly described as an intelligence failure? And then can you address a little bit of what Michael was just laying out, which is, you know, there, there was a fair amount of public messaging about this, that there was a divergence between what the CIA was saying, what the DIA assessments were about the resiliency of Afghan forces, uh, you know, the fact that CIA were routinely pessimistic by comparison I mean, how much would that or should that divergence of views have affected the choices that policymakers were making? So my friend Jim Clapper likes to say that there's only two conditions in life, uh, policy success and intelligence failure. And I don't see how one could call this an intelligence failure. You know, you start with the knowledge that we're concerned about the durability. Now, the country might devolve into civil war, that was certainly a plausible scenario. But again, you have the examples of 2014 in both Iraq and Yemen about how quickly militaries we'd invested a lot could collapse. And it's not because of force ratios or anything else. Psychology is what really drives this and, uh, uh, you know, often and how our militaries break up. Um, And then, as Michael said, as you walk from April um, to August, um, we're on policy autopilot, but the world, you know, is not standing still for us. You have a bunch of events that are showing you that things may be much worse than you think, and you ought to be able to adapt to that. And then third, it's not possible for intelligence to tell you that Kabul's going to fall in 10 days. You know, so if you start escalating what could happen from say six months to 30 days, that's a big red light blinking for policymakers. And, you know, and policymakers live in a world of imperfect intelligence and they have to make decisions. And so uh, to lay the blame on this, uh, on intelligence, or for that matter, on the Afghans, I think is honestly disingenuous. Olivia, can I just add one point? Um, this whole nobody told me that Kabul was going to fall in 11 days line um, is a total red herring, right? Um, it didn't fall in 11 days. Um, you know, it, it literally started falling after we reduced our forces um, after the surge. And it, you know, took a big upward tick in falling after President Trump made his deal with the Taliban and then took a bigger you know, leap forward and falling after President Biden made his announcement. So this didn't happen in 11 days. And, and, it, and, and, and people shouldn't be using that line, right? It's catchy, but it's just not accurate. Yeah, Libby, if I could just say to the, um, uh, as a former chief of station in Afghanistan in 2008, 2009, Michael, you made a very good point. When those district assessments and those Afghan security assessments from CIA came out, you, you, I would be the face of it to the military, and uh, you would take a lot of heat because oftentimes, in a good-natured way, but they, they were diametrically opposed in terms of their, their thoughts on the, on the readiness of, uh, of the Afghan security forces. I'll tell you the, the CIGAR reports, the Special Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction reports, 51 of them were issued on a quarterly basis. And I uh, didn't read all of them, but I perused quite a few of them, and very, very negative assessments, so scathing at times on, on sort of the, the, the readiness levels of the Afghan security forces. And that's over time. You, you'd be hard pressed to find a cigar report that's positive. And that may be the nature of inspector generals, but, but people saw this coming and knew this was happening and it was being reported in many channels. Can I just say one more thing, Olivia? 
Um, I'm probably screwing up your uh, your time here, but this is um, important. I, I think this is important. Um, you know, I think the intelligence community is being blamed here because um, I think there was a real policy failure, not necessarily in the decision to leave, but in the um, effectuating that decision, right? In the implementation of that decision. Maybe we can talk about that next. But what I wanted, what I wanted to say was back in 2012, um, when President Obama was trying to figure out what his stay behind force number was going to be after the drawdown from the surge, and Mike will know how many deputies meetings and principals meetings and NSC meetings we had with the president on that. Um, it seemed to go on forever. Um, it, you know, I prepped, right, for every one of those. And in one of those prep sessions, I actually asked everybody in my office, all of the experts, the analysts and the operations officers, if we left, how long would it take for Kabul to fall? And, you know, various people, various people, um, you know, thought a little bit longer, um, you know, a year, year and a half. Um, some people had caveats on it. But the two people at CIA who had spent more time in Afghanistan than anybody else, um, two chiefs of station who had both served twice as chief of station, and Phil and Mike know who they are, they both said without hesitation, Kabul will fall in less than six months. And I remember taking that to the White House um, and putting that on the table way back in 2012. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Why don't we do another quick round robin of um, how you would characterize all that's happened? I mean, so General Milley called the withdrawal from Afghanistan a logistical success and the war a strategic failure. Of course, the administration, to include the president, have cast it more positively, uh, calling the withdrawal an extraordinary success. Um, so why don't we have each of you uh, describe, how would each of you describe this process? Sure, Mike Vickers, let's start. Um, so it is the strategic failure. I think, you know, uh, General Milley is not always very precise with his words, but uh, in this case, I think he was. And um, you know, it's hard to call it anything but when your enemy for 20 years has taken over the country and is sitting in the capital. Um, and so, you know, I think that that, that that is an accurate statement. And so, and, you know, and it's a heroic logistical act. Um, uh, you could call it extraordinary, whatever you want. You know, all the brilliant tactics and operations and logistics in the world don't make up for strategic failure. The consequences lie in, in, in what happens strategically. 
And so then the question is what happened, you know, certainly for me, it was very personal and seeing something I'd spent, you know, off and on 40 years of my life in, but this is the first, besides my own personal feelings, this is the first defeat America suffered in war since Vietnam, you know, so it's a gut punch to our country. And then there's strategic consequences about both for counterterrorism and what our, uh, other adversaries think about this, about this display. You rest assured the Chinese and the Russians aren't calling this a great American success. Yeah. Um, why don't we go to Phil and then we'll go to Michael. Sure, I would characterize it as, a, as, as Mike did, as a strategic uh, failure of significant proportions. Yes, the logistical efforts to pull people out were absolutely heroic. There's stories to be written and told eventually in the fullness of time. Those were official efforts by U.S. military and other government agencies to pulling out many, many thousands. And there was an absolutely remarkable part of a, a sort of a gray effort of former SOF operators and other uh, government officials, formers, who got together and helped pull out hundreds, if not thousands of other people. So this is a story that that's tremendous, but that's not a victory. The, the, it is a strategic failure. Today, tonight, the Minister of Interior in uh, 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 Afghanistan is Siraj Haqqani who has more American blood in his hands than anybody but Osama bin Laden. We killed Osama bin Laden. So the guy who has the most blood on his hands is Siraj Haqqani. He's the Minister of Interior. It's an abject failure. Michael? So I'm going to focus, you know, I agree that, that the war was a strategic failure, right? And we can talk forever about why that's the case. Um, but for me, the implementation of the decision to leave was not an extraordinary success. Um, yes, you know, once, once it was obvious that we had taken way too long to begin to leave, um, it was a logistical success in terms of getting, getting most folks out, but not all, right? Let's not forget that. Um, um, it should have been, the, the, the withdrawal should have started much, much sooner than it did. Um, I don't know what happened. Um, but this took way too long. It got too crunched at the end. 13 Americans are dead. I find that very difficult to, to call an extraordinary success. Those are pretty candid and harsh assessments. Um, I agree that we could spend a lot of time uh, talking about this. I do want to shift a little bit into what is ahead, um, both in terms of the overall threat picture and what the architecture of the counterterrorism mission uh, will or should like uh, overall. Uh, I was going to start with Phil. Uh, I am going to assume, given what you just said, that you don't believe that we are dealing with a Taliban 2.0 or a changed Taliban. Um, I'm going to assume that you think that, uh, as General Milley put it, the enemy is in Kabul. Uh, there is some consideration being given to recognizing the Taliban as a legitimate government. What effect would that have? Yeah, I don't, I don't believe they've changed. Uh, and you're correct, uh, assuming that would be my position. Uh, no indications thus far. Again, with the, with the placement into uh, official positions of some of the people, including Hakani that I just mentioned, uh, it's a deliberate poke at us and an indication that they're not serious. Hakani is Al-Qaeda related, uh, affiliated, and they're now in positions of, of power. I think the, the uh, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and other elements, it'll be too great of an opportunity, too great of a PR capability to not launch something from Afghanistan against us. And so I think that's going to be in the works. Yes, the Taliban wants recognition. Yes, they want foreign aid. Uh, they're going to have to change, it seems to me, mightily. I get uh, texts by the hour from former colleagues and military colleagues with some graphic uh, 
uh, atrocities being committed in Afghanistan as we speak. So uh, they haven't changed. Mike Vickers, maybe maybe you can weigh in a little bit too. And I wonder if it's clear to you that the Taliban is even going to be able to consolidate and maintain power even at this early stage. I mean, even if we take at face value your commitment not to allow terror groups to reconstitute, which I'm not sure how many people do, um, will they, this you know group of 70,000 different tri- tribal factions be able to control their own territory and the 40 million people who are residing on it to prevent that from happening? Uh, no, they're gonna have great difficulty. Um, you know, not only will they have, you know, they have to worry about a, a civil war breaking out at some point, uh, it, you know, if the repression is is too strong and particularly in the non-Pashtun areas, uh, you know, of the North and, and West. Um, but they also, you know, Taliban strength is varied, you know, between 30,000 or so and maybe surging, you know, for brief periods of time to 60,000. They're not going to be able to pacify Afghanistan any more than we could with 150,000 troops and a lot better technology. And so groups like the Pakistani Taliban that use Afghanistan for sanctuary are talking about doing the same thing in Pakistan, and I would expect to see an uptick in violence there. Groups like ISIS-K that the Taliban is opposed to, ISIS-Khorasan, the the branch of ISIS that's in the Afghanistan-Pakistan region, um, they will um, enjoy some autonomy. Taliban may go after them, but with some effect. But Phil hit on an important point. The big winner here is really al-Qaeda, you know, that we had largely defeated in the Afghanistan-Pakistan region. And they will not, there will be more foreign fighters going to Afghanistan, and Al-Qaeda, with its strong ties to Siraj Haqqani and others, Pakistani Taliban, among others, um, will be able to reconstitute. It may take them two years, typically does or more. But, you know, our lessons, again, from 9-11 on, you know, after we defeated Al-Qaeda and the Taliban in 2001, they were able to regroup in Afghanistan-Pakistan border region um, starting about 2004. So by 2006, we had the transatlantic airline plot that was on the scale of 9-11, unfortunately broken up by very good intelligence. Uh, Right. Michael, so Mike laid out just uh, a lot of what are very real concerns. I mean, Pentagon leadership this week said that they're not confident that the U.S. is going to be able to deny either ISIS or al-Qaeda the ability to use uh, Afghanistan as a launch pad for terror attacks. Millie, I think, said that it could happen in as few as six months. So can you just talk us through a little bit, what are the key determinants of whether that happens and how fast that happens? Yeah, I just want to very quickly say that I agree that we're not dealing with a new Taliban. And I agree that they're going to provide safe haven to um, terrorist groups, most importantly, Al-Qaeda. And Al-Qaeda is intent on rebuilding its capability to attack the homeland, no doubt about it. And I agree 100% with Mike that um, that if they're allowed to do it, it will happen very quickly. Um, one of the things we've learned, um, um, as Mike said, is that terrorist groups um, are able to reconstitute very quickly when you take the pressure off of them. So, you know, I'd say six months to a year um, before they're in a position to attack us. Um, and that's pretty quick. Right. So how do we prevent that? We we would have to do we would have to do two things. Um, we would have to have two capabilities and we would have to have um, um, one political one political factor. The two capabilities are number one, um, and a, a, a significant intelligence capability. And I'd break that into two pieces. The first piece is 
to collect intelligence on the plans, intentions, and capabilities of Al-Qaeda so that we know when they're getting to the point where they're posing again a, a significant threat to the U.S. And then the second type of intelligence is when they've reached that point and when the president has made a decision that we need to degrade them, we need to provide the precision intelligence that the military is gonna to need to do their over the horizon attacks, right? Let's take drones, for example. Drones don't know where to go unless a specific piece of intelligence tells them where to go and look. Um, th these are not broad search tools, right? Um, so you need that kind of intelligence capability, right? Um, both kinds. And then secondly, you need a military capability to reach in and touch, touch Al-Qaeda and degrade them when you have to do that. Um, you know, Mike is, much, is in a much better position to talk about what those capabilities are than I am. Um, the, the, the third point I make is, is, this political, is this political thing, which is even if the intelligence communities identify that Al-Qaeda is reconstituting and again posing a significant threat, and even if the military has the capability, whoever the president is has to have the political will in order to order that degradation, right? So those are the three things you need. Um, I'm not worried about our ability to figure out how to do the first two. I'm a little worried about where the resources are gonna come to do that because we want to shift resources um, to, to you know, our strategic peer competitors, China and Russia, um, and we are gonna take them from CT. Well, I don't know if that's gonna work anymore. Um, so if we spend the resources and have the focus, I think we can do one and two. Um, three worries me a little bit, given that, that I think most politicians want to forget about Afghanistan. Um, so I worry that, that a future president might be um, in a position where they're not willing to take action um, when they have to. So my, Mike Vickers, I want to hear from you in the you know, waning minutes that we have left, because um, you know, details are really, really sparse on how the administration's over-the-horizon uh, strategy is going to work in Afghanistan. One thing we did learn from congressional testimony this week is that the U.S. still doesn't have any basing agreements uh, with any neighboring countries. Uh, we also now see the Taliban warning of unspecified consequences if the U.S. continues to fly drones over its territory. They're citing the Doha Agreement uh, uh, that the U.S. says is binding as, you know, uh, as being in violation of that. China is endorsing that view. So if you were advising the administration on how this is, would work, you know, what would you say are the requirements for a successful predominantly, if not exclusively, over-the-horizon counterterrorism strategy in Afghanistan? So no one would choose, no, no counterterrorism strategist that I know would choose an over-the-horizon capability over a closer in or in-country capability. And that's why I think this was such a strategically fraught decision to not have a small counterterrorism um, presence left in country, uh, mostly special operators and intelligence personnel. Um, and the reason for that is, as Michael outlined, you know, this is mostly an intelligence war and your intelligence degrades as the further away you get. Also, the further away you get in flight time, particularly for instruments um, like drones, uh, which are slow flying aircraft, you spend an awful lot of time in transit rather than in target. 
So if we had to fly from the Persian Gulf, for example, um, which we have the capability of doing, it's hardly desirable from a, uh, uh, a time on target uh, point of view. So we won't be as effective as we otherwise would be by, by a long shot. You know, that said, uh, if we maintain an over-the-horizon capability, all our other over-the-horizon capabilities, again, which are really not by choice, they're dictated by circumstance, are much closer to their target areas than likely will be in Afghanistan. Um, if we maintain one, we'll still be better off than we were um, pre-9-11 and, if, and uh, under the conditions that Michael talked about. If we have the will to use it and everything else, it's still better than nothing, but it's, it's hardly as good as an in-country presence. Phil, I'd, I'd welcome your view on this too. I mean, I mean so how, how, do you, how is it done with no human network whatsoever, assuming there's none? Um, or you know, would the CIA have been able to construct something like a leave-behind network uh, of human assets that uh, you know, could function in a Taliban-run Afghanistan? Uh, if so, would such a network you know, have been able to survive the upheaval of these final weeks. Talk to us a little bit about um, what possibilities exist there. Sure, the, the human capability won't uh, uh, deteriorate immediately. It will deteriorate over time. But yes, there were capabilities left in place uh, that will be brought to bear. But again, they will attrit and, and eventually deteriorate over time. So without the boots on the ground, we got, I say we, US intelligence community and US military got very, very good at prosecuting uh, operations against senior Taliban and AQ figures because of the basing and boots on the ground. Again, that's all gone, of course, so that's not that's not going to be there. Some point that Michael made, I think, is a very good one. Will future administrations have the stomach to utilize these capabilities and, and pull the trigger when necessary? Not only pull the trigger, but realize mistakes are going to be made, like they were tragically, several weeks ago in Kabul, this could happen again, and they have to be prepared for that. That's one of the penalties or risks with over the horizon. You're not going to have the granularity that we had with, with human sources uh, on the ground. Yeah, let's let's briefly just talk about that strike, because uh, so how does what the Pentagon said about how it was carried out sort of sit with you? I mean, General McKenzie said it was a self-defense strike based on an imminent threat uh, that that you know precluded the opportunity to develop pattern of life. You know, to what extent are those factors or non-factors when you're talking overall about over the horizon? Phil, feel free to jump in, and, and Mike thereafter. Well, I mean, I remember something. In fact, General Hayden said back when he was the director, "You want it bad, you get it bad." I think this was rushed. Uh, there was a real strong, understandable desire for, for retribution. And, and uh, unfortunately, the wrong dots were connected. Uh, there were the dissenting views, I understand, uh, from the press and the, in the community, perhaps, on this. But again, they were up against a, a clock and uh, decided to, to move. And tragic things like this can happen. Uh, I would say, in my experience, it is extremely rare. Extremely aware when, when uh, any element of the USG does one of these kinetic operations. The military has made mistakes. It did so in this case. But that is very much a minority of these operations. Mike, if you'd like to add, feel free. Yeah, I, uh, was, this strike was tragic, but it was also under very unusual circumstances for counterterrorism, you know, a real in extremis case. Normally, you develop targets over time. And in fact, what gives these operations their greatest precision is that you know you really have time usually to make sure that you're right, and so if you see that 
children go in the area or something, you wait till they leave. You may wait a month in some cases before you do a strike. And that's, that's the benefit of having real persistent presence is that you can get that kind of precision and wage a strategic campaign. You know, I would say our most successful counterterrorism campaign against Al-Qaeda, um, because ISIS was like 2001, it was a mixture of Taliban and Al-Qaeda, but was really in the Afghanistan-Pakistan border region. And that's where we weren't over the horizon. That's where we were close in and we developed intelligence over years, you know, as Phil and Michael both know, and we were able to bring everything to bear. Let's talk a little bit about Pakistan. Um, in, and again, the just few minutes that we have left, I am assuming that each of you will have some thoughts um, about, um, about Pakistan, its relationship with the Taliban going forward. Um, so uh, Michael Morrell, why don't we start with you? You know, how, how do you see Pakistan's relationship with the Taliban? How do you see the relationship between our intelligence services and the ISI going forward? Um, let's just keep it broad there and then we can drill down if, if we can salvage the time. Sure. I think Pakistan is about ready to pay the price for their 20-year support of the Afghan Taliban. And the reason I say that is because the Pakistani Taliban, which wants to overthrow the Pakistani state and, and routinely conducts attacks in Pakistan, used to be in Pakistan when there were a large number of U.S. forces in Afghanistan where the Pakistani military could get at them. Now, guess where they are? Now they're in, their, they're in Afghanistan. And now they're coming across the border into Pakistan to conduct attacks. They just did one a few weeks ago in Karachi, right? So the Pakistanis now face an enemy that they can't get at, right? Um, so I do think there's some mutual interest here. Um, you know, I think it would make sense for the United States, and maybe we've done this already, I don't know, but for the United States to go to the Pakistanis and not ask for basing rights, right? That's a little too quick. They're not politically able to do that at the moment. But say to them, let's work together on intelligence collection in Afghanistan. Um, we need to collect intelligence on, on Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Um, you need to collect intelligence on the Pakistani Taliban and ISIS. So let's work together. Um, I think there's a mutual interest um, and you know, it could be kept secret. Um, I think we should make the pitch. Mike, I see you're raring to go. Um, so... And it's an interesting idea. One of the, you know, probably the most unusual thing about our Afghan war since 2001 is not its duration, even though it's America's longest war. It's the fact that an ally of ours um, was really aiding our enemy for 20 years. And so we had both an ally and uh, someone aiding an enemy at the same time. Um, you know, and that's why we call them a frenemy, I suppose, you know, a new word we, we, we made up. Um, and I think Michael's right about potentially some common interest. I would add that Pakistani-U.S. cooperation was best right after 9-11, and it lasted until about 2010. And then it, it really deteriorated. And it deteriorated, actually, before bin Laden. And we offered them all kinds of intelligence support in the border region when, as Michael said, the Pakistani Taliban were in Pakistan and killing lots of Pakistanis and they wouldn't take it. They didn't want us to see um, their support for the Taliban, you know, waving them through the border and other things, which we saw anyway. 
um, et cetera. So they wouldn't take that cooperation. So while I'd like to believe that they would take it now, I'm pretty skeptical. Since 2010 and 11, they've been really thinking they're going to drive the U.S. out of Afghanistan and then they're turning to China. And that's what they've increasingly been doing. Mike, I'm just looking for any way to get close to Afghanistan with our intelligence assets. <laughs> well, me too. <laughs> Olivia, there was always a crazy, from my perspective, duality to the relationship with the Pakistanis and my colleagues have, have touched upon it. Uh, they house the Haqqani network. They house the Quetta uh, Shura. Um, yet they, they lost thousands of troops in the Fatah fighting different Taliban elements and at times prosecuting or assisting us in prosecuting very, very sensitive operations only to then publicly complain about them in, in the press. So it always was a real duality. But to the point of they, they may have bitten off more than they can swallow here, you know, just last week in the Red Mosque in, in uh, Islamabad was flying the Taliban flag. Now, they ultimately had to take it down, but they may have uncorked something now. They may have a hard time uh, controlling That was our discussion on Afghanistan. Please join us next week for another edition of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. The show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. Additional production support by the Hayden Center's Matt Fay. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.